0: Section five of the Underground Railroad. Part five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Underground Railroad. Part five by William Still. Section five. Portraits and Sketches. Thomas Garrett. Part two. Mr. Garrett kept his pledge and redoubled his exertions. The trial advertised him, and such was the demand on him for shelter, that he was compelled to put another story on his back buildings. His friends helped him to start again in business, and commencing anew in his sixtieth year with nothing, he again amassed a handsome competence, generously contributing all the while to every work in behalf of the downtrodden blacks or his suffering fellow-men of any color. In time the war came, and, as he remarked, the nation went into the business by the wholesale, so he quit his retail operations, having, after he commenced to keep a record, helped off over twenty-one hundred slaves, and no inconsiderable number before that time. In time, too, he came to be honored instead of execrated for his noble efforts. Wilmington became an abolition city, and for once, at least, a prophet was not without honor in his own city mr garrett continued his interest in every reform up to his last illness and probably his last appearance in any public capacity was as president of a woman suffrage meeting in the city hall a few months ago which was addressed by julia ward howe lucy stone and henry b blackwell he lived to see the realization of his hopes for universal freedom and in april last on the occasion of the great parade of the colored people in this city he was carried through our streets in an open barouche surrounded by the men in whose behalf he had labored so faithfully and the guards around his carriage carrying banners with the inscription our moses a moses he was to their race but unto him it was given to enter into the promised land toward which he had set his face persistently and almost alone for more than half a century he was beloved almost to adoration by his dusky hued friends and in the dark days of the beginning of the war which every Wilmingtonian will remember with a shudder in those days of doubt confusion and suspicion without his knowledge or consent thomas garrett's house was constantly surrounded and watched by faithful black men resolved that come weal come woe to them no harm should come to the benefactor of their race he was a hero in a lifetime fight an upright, honest man in his dealings with men, a tender husband, a loving father, and, above all, a man who loved his neighbor as himself, and righteousness and truth better than ease, safety, or worldly goods, and who never let any fear of harm to person or property sway him from doing his whole duty to the uttermost. He was faithful among the faithless, upright and just in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, and lived to see his labors rewarded and approved in his own lifetime, and then with joy that the right had triumphed by mightier means than his own, with thankfulness for the past, and with calm trust for the future, he passed to the reward of the just. He has fought a good fight, he has finished his course, he has kept the faith. From the same paper of January thirtieth, eighteen seventy one, we extract an account of the funeral obsequies which took place on Saturday, January twenty eighth. Funeral service on Saturday the funeral of thomas garrett which took place on saturday partook almost of the character of a popular ovation to the memory of the deceased though it was conducted with the plainness of form which characterizes the society of which he was a member there was no display no organization nothing whatever to distinguish this from ordinary funerals except the outpouring of people of every creed condition and color to follow the remains to their last resting place there was for an hour or two before the procession started a constant living stream of humanity passing into the house around the coffin and out at another door to take a last look at the face of the deceased the features of which displayed a sweetness and serenity which occasioned general remark a smile seemed to play upon the dead lips shortly after three o'clock the funeral procession started the plain coffin containing the remains being carried by the stalwart arms of a delegation of colored men and the family and friends of the deceased following in carriages with a large procession on foot while the sidewalks along the line from the house to the meeting-house more than six squares were densely crowded with spectators the friends meeting-house was already crowded except the place reserved for the relatives of the deceased and though probably fifteen hundred people crowded into the capacious building a greater number still were unable to gain admission the crowd inside was composed of all kinds and conditions of men white and black all uniting to do honor to the character and works of the deceased the coffin was laid in the open space in front of the gallery of ministers and elders and the lid removed from it after which there was a period of silence presently the venerable lucretia mott arose and said that seeing the gathering of the multitude there and thronging along the streets as she had passed on her way to the meeting-house she had thought of the multitude which gathered after the death of jesus and of the remark of the centurion who seeing the people said certainly this was a righteous man looking at this multitude she would say surely this also was a righteous man she was not one of those who thought it best always on occasions like this to speak in eulogy of the dead but this was not an ordinary case, and seeing the crowd that had gathered, and amongst it the large numbers of a once despised and persecuted race for which the deceased had done so much, she felt that it was fit and proper that the good deeds of this man's life should be remembered for the encouragement of others. She spoke of her long acquaintance with him, of his cheerful and sunny disposition, and his firm devotion to the truth as he saw it. Aaron M. Powell of New York was the next speaker, and he spoke at length with great earnestness of the lifelong labor of his departed friend in the abolition cause, of his cheerfulness, his courage, and his perfect consecration to his work. He alluded to the fact that deceased was a member of the Society of Friends, and held firmly to its faith that God leads and inspires men to do the work He requires of them, that He speaks within the soul of every man, and that all men are equally His children, subject to His guidance— and that all should be free to follow wherever the spirit might lead it was thomas garrett's recognition of this sentiment that made him an abolitionist and inspired him with the courage to pursue his great work he cared little for the minor details of quakerism but he was a true quaker in his devotion to this great central idea which is the basis on which it rests he urged the society to take a lesson from the deceased and recognizing the responsibility of their position to labor with earnestness and to consecrate their whole beings to the cause of right and reform. It is impossible for us to give any fair abstract of Mr. Powell's earnest and eloquent tribute to his friend, on whom he had looked, as he said, as a father in Israel, from his boyhood. William Howard Day then came forward, saying he understood that it would not be considered inappropriate for one of his race to say a few words on this occasion, and make some attempt to pay a fitting tribute to one to whom they owed so much— he did not feel to-day like paying such a tribute his grief was too fresh upon him his heart too bowed down and he could do no more than in behalf of his race not only those here but the host the deceased had befriended and of the whole four millions to whom he had been so true a friend cast a tribute of praise and thanks upon his grave rev alfred cookman of grace m e church next arose and said that he came there intending to say nothing but the scene moved him to a few words He remembered once standing in front of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and seeing therein the name of the architect, Sir Christopher Wren, inscribed, and under it this inscription, Stranger, if you would see his monument, look about you. And the thought came to him that if you would see the monument of him who lies there, look about you, and see it built in stones of living hearts. He thanked God for the works of this man. He thanked him especially for his noble character. He said that he felt that the body had been the temple of a noble spirit, I, the temple of god himself and some day they would meet the spirit in the heavenly land beyond the grave lucretia mott arose and said she feared the claim might appear to be made that quakerism alone held the great central principle which dominated this man's life but she wished it understood that they recognized this voice within as leading and guiding all men and they probably meant by it much the same as those differing from them meant by the third person in their trinity she did not wish, even in appearance, to claim a belief in this voice for her own sect alone. T. Clarkson Taylor then said that the time for closing the services had arrived, and in a very few words commended the lesson of his life to those present, after which the meeting dissolved and the body was carried to the graveyard in the rear of the meeting-house and deposited in its last resting-place. THE TRIAL OF THE CASES 1848 To the editor of the commercial your admirable and interesting sketch of the career of the late thomas garrett contains one or two statements which according to my recollection of the facts are not entirely accurate and are perhaps of sufficient importance to be corrected the proceedings in the u s circuit court were not public prosecutions or indictments but civil suits instituted by the owners of the runaway slaves who employed and paid counsel to conduct them An act of Congress, then in force, imposed a penalty of five hundred dollars on any person who should knowingly harbor or conceal a fugitive from labor, to be recovered by and for the benefit of the claimant of such fugitive, in any court proper to try the same, saving moreover to the claimant his right of action, for or on account of loss, etc., thus giving to the slave owner two cases for action for each fugitive, one of debt for the penalty and one of trespass for damages. There were in all seven slaves, only the husband and father of the family being free, who escaped under the friendly help and guidance of Mr. Garrett, five of whom were claimed by E. N. Turner, and the remaining two by C. T. Glanding, both claimants being residents of Maryland. In the suits for the penalties, Turner obtained judgment for $2,500 and Glanding for $1,000. In these cases the jury could give neither less nor more than the amount of the penalties on the proper proof being made nor in the trespass case did the jury give larger damages than were claimed a jury sometimes does queer things but it cannot make a verdict for a greater sum than the plaintiff demands in the trespass cases glanding had a verdict for one thousand dollars damages but in turner's case only nine hundred dollars were allowed though the plaintiff sued for twenty five hundred it is hardly true to say that any one of the juries was packed indeed it would have been a difficult matter in that day for the marshal to summon thirty sober honest and judicious men fairly and impartially chosen from the three counties of delaware who would have found verdicts different from those which were rendered the jury must have been fixed for the defendant to have secured any other result on the supposition that the testimony admitted of any doubt or question the anti-slavery men in the state being like virgil's shipwrecked mariners very few in number and scattered over a vast space. What most redounds to the honor and praise of Mr. Garrett in this transaction as a noble and disinterested philanthropist is that after the fugitives had been discharged from custody under the writ of habeas corpus, and when he had been advised by his lawyer who was also his personal friend to keep his hands off and let the party work their own passage to a haven of freedom not then far distant, or he might be involved in serious trouble, he deliberately refused to abandon them to the danger of pursuit and capture the welfare and happiness of too many human beings were at stake to permit him to think of personal consequences and he was ready and dared to encounter any risk for himself so that he could ensure the safety of those fleeing from bondage it was this heroic purpose to protect the weak and helpless at any cost this fearless unselfish action not stopping to weigh the contingencies of individual gain or loss that constitutes his best title to the gratitude of those he served and to the admiration and respect of all who can appreciate independent conduct springing from pure and lofty motives he did what he thought and believed to be right and let the consequences take care of themselves he never would directly or otherwise entice a slave to leave his master But he never would refuse his aid to the hunted, panting wretch that, in the pursuit of happiness, was seeking after liberty. And who among us is now bold enough to say that in all this he did not see clearly, act bravely, do justly, and live up to the spirit of the sacred text, Whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them? End of section five. Recording by Denise Nordell of Modesto, California.